You may be seated. We turn in God's word then this morning to the book of Joshua. Once again, chapter 10, as we read of the aftermath of where we were last Lord's Day in the first part of chapter 10, where we had this decisive victory over the five kings that had come against the people of Israel. Actually, they came against Gibeon and Israel because of their covenant of peace um, had to fulfill their responsibilities of that covenant and protect the Gibeonites, which God uses to bring about a great defeat of these five major kings in the southern part of Canaan. And uh, there were some monumental events that took place there. The hailstones that God threw down that killed more of uh, the enemy soldiers than did the swords of the Israelites. There was also the request of Joshua that the sun not go down. And we read that it did not do so for the better part of a day. But now we return to that. And for those of you who are visiting with us, we've been on a series of messages dealing with uh, the issue of spiritual warfare and how we are to go about conducting that in our own personal lives um, as an individual congregation of the Church of Jesus Christ, but also the lessons for the broader Church of Jesus Christ. How do we go about the spiritual warfare that we are called to engage in, in this day and in this age, taking our lessons then from the book of Joshua. We pick it up this morning then at the 16th verse, the 16th verse of Joshua chapter 10. Let us hear then God's breathed out word to us. These five kings fled and hid themselves in the cave at Makeda. And it was told to Joshua, the five kings have been found, hidden in the cave at Makeda. And Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies, attack their rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities, for the Lord your God has given them into your hand. When Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out, and when the remnant that remained of them had entered into the fortified cities, then all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp at Makeda. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. Then Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. They did so, and brought those five kings out to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of the war who had gone with him, come near, put your feet on the neck of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on, the, on their necks. And Joshua said to them, do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. 
And afterwards, Joshua struck them and put them to death, and he hanged them on five trees. And they hung on the trees until evening. But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves, and they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remain to this very day. As for Makeda, Joshua captured it on that day and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining. And he did to the king of Makeda just as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Makeda to Libna and fought against Libna. And the Lord gave it also and its king into the hand of Israel. And he struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it. He left nothing remaining in it. And he did so to its king as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel, which passed with him, passed on from Libna to Lachish and laid siege to it and fought against it. And the Lord gave Lachish into the hand of Israel and he captured it on the second day and struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it as he had done to Libna. Then Horam, the king of Jazer, came up to help Lachish and Joshua struck him and his people until he had left none remaining. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Lachish to Eglon, and they laid siege to it and fought against it, and they captured it on that day and struck it with the edge of the sword, and he devoted every person in it to destruction that day as he had done to Lachish. And Joshua and all Israel with him went up from Eglon to Hebron, and he fought against it and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and its kings and its towns and every person in it. He left none remaining as he had done to Eglon and devoted it to destruction and every person in it. Then Joshua and all Israel with him turned back to Deber and fought against it. And he captured it with its king and all its towns, and they struck them with the edge of the sword and devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining, just as he had done to Hebron and to Libna and to its king. So he did to Deber and to its king. Then Joshua struck the whole land. The hill country and the Negev and the lowland and the slopes and all their kings, he left none remaining but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord God of Israel had commanded. And Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza and all the country of Goshen as far as Gibeon. And Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. And Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. Thus far the reading of God's breathed out word. Let's bow in prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, we come to you again, Lord, this morning. Thankful and grateful for this time we can spend in worship of you. We thank you for this word that we have read this morning, Lord. And we pray that you'll be with Pastor Bob as he teaches us from this word. Lord, we see the battles that go on and on and on, one after the other. And we pray that you gave us the strength that you gave to Joshua and his men. Help us to be aware that we are in a spiritual battle. Help us to fight for your cause, for your kingdom, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen. So I've subtitled the message this morning, Work to be Done. Work to be Done. Three points from our passage this morning. Point one, first things first. In all of our work, in all of our labor, it is a good idea to always put first things first. But in spiritual battles, 
It also is a good technique. It is good advice. It is a biblical case to say we should put first things first, which we see, hopefully uh, we'll come to understand that as we look at this text this morning. Secondly, feet on necks. What's that all about? This whole thing where we see these, these commanders putting their feet on the necks of these five kings. And then finally, our third point, finishing the task. First things first. Isn't it quite something if we put together last week's passage with this week's passage? We first of all have an arrogant king who is angry at Gibeon and wants to go strike Gibeon because it has made peace with the people of Israel. And he gathers together this group of four other kings with himself to go and to beat up on Gibeon because they made peace with Israel. And they engaged the battle. As one reads the passage, one gets the feeling Israel probably once again is an overwhelmed force in this regard. At least they're fighting in territory they have no clue where they're at. And yet what we read in the aftermath of the battle is this. The five kings fled. The five kings fled. Soon as, soon as they see the battle turning, as soon as they see that which God is doing through his people, they run and they hide. They leave their soldiers behind and they run and hide. And they hide themselves in a cave thinking they'll be protected, thinking they will not be found, thinking they will not be searched out, thinking that they're going to survive and live another day to, to perhaps come again. But they're not leading their men. I think there is a principle there for us to, to look at how often and how quickly those who are in the forces opposed to the church of Jesus Christ will abandon one another when the church begins to exercise the power that God has given to it. These men went and hid, but they are found. Verse 17, and it was told Joshua, the five kings have been found hidden in a cave. They're discovered. But here's where first things first comes into play. Joshua says, don't stay there. Put some rocks in front of the cave, guard it with a few men, but don't stay there. Go pursue our enemies. These five men cowering in fear in a cave are not our problem right now. Our problem are those troops. Those troops who are on the run back to their fortified city. Go after them, chase them hunt them down, destroy them before they get back to their fortified cities and are able 
to provide some sort of refuge for themselves. First things first, leave the kings. Go after the foot soldiers. Take them out. Now, why else might Joshua be doing I mean, that's just good military strategy. That's just smart. I think as we wage war individually with sin in our spiritual battles, we tend, when we're dealing with sin in our lives, I think we tend to go after the big things. And we let the little things stay in place. The little foot soldiers. I think there's a lesson that Joshua gives to us here, or the Lord gives to us here, is pay attention to the foot soldiers. Is it not found in, in uh, the, the book of uh, Song of Songs to be careful of the little foxes? For it's the little foxes that ruin the grapes. Be careful. See, we're, we're always going for the big guys. I think that's part of the problem that we deal with as far as the church as well. We, we tend to go after the five kings rather than focusing on the foot soldiers that we need to be pursuing. Third thing in regards to it. Joshua had prayed, Lord, hold that son so that we can pursue our enemies. God granted him the request. God's holding the universe in place. Here comes Joshua's pivotal decision. I prayed for something. God has given it to me. Do I now stop? I prayed for this so that I could pursue enemy. Do I now stop? Take time. Use some of this day that the Lord has given me to deal with these five kings who are already holed up, who are already captured. Do I stop now and deal with them? Or do I do what I prayed to do? Here's the question for each one of us to face in regards to that. How often... Do we not pray for something specifically? God grants the request. And once God grants the request, we waste the request. Let me give you an example of how this works. Lord, you, you know my relative, you know my friend is very sick, very ill. Lord, they don't know the Lord. Oh, Lord, please just heal them. Please heal them so that they'll have the opportunity to hear again the word of Christ. Okay? Good prayer. God grants the prayer. What do we do with the prayer? Are we at the guy's doorstep going, hey, Frankie, I, would, I just want you to know. We prayed for you. I've been praying for you. I've been praying that you'd be healed so that I would have the opportunity to present to you the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or do we get distracted? 
Oh, God granted the request, Frankie's. Well, that's pretty good. Oh, I got a football game to go to. Oh, I got a trip to go on. One of the lessons Pastor Bob has learned in 32 years of ministry is this. When somebody calls and says, so-and-so appears to be ready to die. They don't know the Lord. Ah, yeah, I'll get there Friday. Now that becomes an immediate. Because too often I said, I've said that. You know, the call comes in on a Wednesday. And, well, yeah, I'll get there Friday. I'll plan that for Friday. You know what happens Thursday. They die. See, when God grants a request, don't get distracted. Don't get off target. Joshua prayed, Lord, hold that sun so we can pursue our enemies. Hey, we got five kings over here. Hmm, what do I do? Do I get distracted by the ceremony of what I'm going to do with these five kings? Spend a few hours dealing with them? No. Hold them there. Keep some guards. The rest of you, pursue, pursue, pursue. Not distracted. I think that that's our problem today. The church is distracted. We as individual Christians are distracted. I think Satan likes to distract us from the purpose and cause of dealing with spiritual battles. Right? We're, we're like that puppy that cannot maintain focus on anything. Any little sound. Over here. Rather than dealing with that which is before us. First things first. Oh, there's one other thing. Do you notice though when they come back, there is this interesting little line at the end of verse 21, right? So they go off, they, they fulfill what Joshua has said. They go after their enemies, they pursue them. And when they come back, there is this line. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. Not a man moved his tongue against the people of Israel. So this isn't Israel. This is their enemies. And I think given where we're at, it would seem to imply the five kings in particular. These five leaders are silent. One commentator calls it the silence of fear. If they're back, it means they were successful. And if they're successful, that means I'm done. There's no taunting. There's no mocking. There's no mocking this group of refugees, ex-former slaves, who have wandered in the desert for 40 years, who don't have the modern day equipment that the rest of these kings have. And they're afraid. 
They're a bunch of sheep herders. They're a bunch of brick masons. These are not professional soldiers. And they don't say a word. It's sort of the opposite of Psalm 2, right? The kings of the earth, right? Mock, let us break their bonds asunder. Not here. There's just silence. The silence of fear. In one of the books I have on the book of Joshua, it's written by a fellow by the name of Alan Redpath. This was so pertinent. I could not help but read it. Okay? Just put it into our modern day context. Right? The enemies of the church of Jesus Christ. The enemy of your soul, Satan himself. Is he silent? Are they silent? <laughs> Are they pretty mocking, cackling, forceful, arrogant? Redpath writes, I believe with all my heart that God's purpose for his church today is the same. To make it a church to be feared. Speaking of the church for a moment in terms of a building, it should be a place to which people almost fear to come. Lest they be converted. Isn't that an interesting idea? They're so afraid to come to church because they might actually be converted here. They might actually come to know Christ. That the church would be such a place that people would go, I'm not going there. That's going to change my way of life. That's what's going on in Joshua, right? They don't want Israel to succeed because if Israel succeeds, it's going to change their way of life. It's going to change their pagan ways. It's going to come to an end. Wouldn't it be great if the church was a place where people feared to come because they would be converted? A church is a fellowship should be composed of people who are uncompromising in their testimony, courageous in their faith, and holy in their lives. In church services, there should be the awe and reverence demanded by the presence of God. This is not only God's purpose for his church, but also for every truly regenerate man or woman of God that they would be feared. The Christian man is he who is righteous in his conduct, uncompromising in his principles, passionate in his devotion to the Savior, sacrificial in his service, and transparent in his life. He has no life behind the scenes to which he retreats to indulge his appetite for things that he would be ashamed to do in the company of Christian people. His life will bear the closest scrutiny of his strongest critics, from which he will come out unscathed, a holy man of God, continually. 
If this is the purpose of God, and I question that anyone would argue the point in light of God's plan of redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ, let us ask ourselves how it can be true for us and for our churches. Oh, to have the awe of God in our hearts of the people and the preacher. Oh, that when people come to church on Sunday, there might be something about the place that would speak to them of heaven. They uttered not a word. Wouldn't it be something if when the church today, in this age, in this society, said, this is sin, no more. That the voices of political leaders, of movement leaders, would be so instilled by the fear of the church as the power of Christ in this world that they would not dare speak. That's God's purpose. We saw it here. We see it here. It happened. By God's grace, it's going to happen again. In our day, in our age, first things first, though. Secondly, the feet on the necks. Well, it's a message being communicated, right? It's a message that's being illustrated. It's not so much, oh, that hurts my neck. Oh, the pain. That's not the point. The point is not for them to deliver some pain upon these captured kings. Joshua's going to take care of that in a few minutes when he hangs them, right? This is symbolic. It's a, it's a symbol. It's a symbol of what? Well, when I've talked about this in Bible studies before, I, I always use the illustration of wrestling with my two older brothers, right? You're never going to win. You're eight, 10 years younger than them, you're never going to win. You're not going to beat them. I might be able to now, okay? But I never was going to do that as a kid. So what happened, right? They always get you in this kind of strange position. They got their arms in and you're locked in. And and then what do they say? Say uncle, come on, say uncle. Why? Because as soon as you say uncle, that was the sign and symbol of it's done. I'm not going to fight. I'm not going to struggle anymore. You won. You beat me. That's what this is an indication is. When you as a king are down on the ground prostrate and somebody else comes up and puts their foot on your neck, that's the sign you have no more power. You have no more strength. You have no more fight. You're done. You're defeated. It's over. You have just become the subject of the one whose foot is on your neck. But something is interesting here. In that day, in that age, this was a common practice. This is what you did when you defeated you know, the king and took him captured. This is what you did. You forced him down on the ground and you made him say, uncle. You put your foot on his neck. But generally, it was the king who did that or the military commander. Notice what Joshua does. Joshua himself does not do that. He says, you guys, you guys who who are my captains, commanders, you come forward and do this. 
Why? Because Joshua wanted to symbolize for him that it wasn't him. It was the Lord. Joshua's an old guy by this point. He's an old man. Once again, a good case for no retirement. He's an old man. He's going to die soon. When Joshua dies, does that mean we have no power? We have no strength? No, you, you, you younger military commanders, you come up here, put your foot on their neck. This is what God will do to all your enemies. This is what the Lord your God who fights for you will do. And I want all of you young men, that means anybody younger than me, who can hear me this morning, I want you to listen well. This is what the Lord your God will do to all of your enemies. God will fight for you. Some of you are 30, 35 years old. Some of you are quite a bit younger than that. You're raising families, right? And you're looking at the world in which we're in and you're going, I don't know about this. I'd love to have a ceremony this morning where I just call you up and say, stand here. Here is the enemy. Here's the enemy of secularism. Here's the enemy of humanism. Here's the enemy and we could lay them all out. Just stomp on it. Just put your foot on it. And then I'm going to say to you, this is what the Lord your God will do to all of your enemies. What an amazing thing Joshua does here. I mean, he could have said, I'm Joshua, I'm military commander. Look at me, look what I've done. No, no. This is an encouragement to those young men serving under him to say, God will fight for you. Do not be afraid. Be strong. Be courageous. Third thing under this, it's a message obeyed. God gave them into their hands. Finished. It's over. Right? He takes the kings, he executes them. Dead. One of the commentators points out, it's kind of interesting though, right? He, he hangs them. You get the feeling they're all kind of looking at these dead kings and kind of going, there's a little bit more today. Isn't there something else we can do today? I mean, all we're going to do is watch dead kings hang there. And so Joshua says, cut them down. And the very next thing is this. They went to Makedah. See, Joshua is, is, he's not even willing to just sit here and go, ah, look what we did. We killed five kings. No, there's more work to be done. Let's go to Makedah. And let's go to Makedah and let's destroy Makedah as the Lord our God has commanded us. And let's do to that king as we did to the king of Jericho. It's a message obeyed. We need to finish the fight in our own lives, in our own hearts with sin. In the Reformed faith, we, we have this term that's called mortification of sin. 
It's a fancy term that we simply get from the Bible. It's a biblical term, but it's the idea that Paul presses forward that we are to put to death the old man of sin. Christ has won the battle. Finish. Finish it. Finish sin in your heart. Finish sin in your life. Don't sit there and rest. Do the work. Go to work. Deal with that sin. But it is also a call for the church of Jesus Christ. Get to work. You've had it pretty easy, church especially in North America for 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 100 years. You haven't had to deal with a lot of difficulty. You haven't had to deal with a lot of stresses. You haven't had to deal with a lot of opposition. Well, you do now. Get to work. First things first, feet on the next. Finish the task. See, what we're given in that last section is the list. They went here, they went there, and went there. If we had a map, we'd see that what Joshua is doing is he's picking off city one by one by one. All of the major cities are now falling in that southern part of the land of Judah. And there is a continual repetition, right? You keep hearing it. And he did to them as he did to the others. And what, what is it? He did to them as he did to the king of Jericho. That's what starts the list. Then it's just he did to them as he did to the previous king. And as he did to the previous king. What does that mean? To do to them as he did to the king of Jericho. Well, if you go back to the passage and the story about Joshua uh, and Israel defeating, obviously with God's help, the city of Jericho, the line that is repeated, I think it's in verses 6 and 17, is the line that says, and he devoted them to destruction. What did that mean? It means it was for the Lord. This is not personal. This is not personal. When we start engaging in personal battles against people, you know, when it becomes a personal thing of you against the, the, the person at work who's always agitating for, you know, really strange out, far out stuff, when it becomes a personal thing, you've lost it. Because this is not a personal thing. And once it becomes that, you failed in the mission. This is the work of the Lord. This is done for the glory and honor of Jesus Christ. We defeat sin in our own hearts for the glory of Christ. We seek to go out as the church of Jesus Christ into this world, defeating sin for the glory of Jesus Christ. When it becomes personal, when it becomes church, when it becomes denominational, we lose. It's always for the glory of Christ. The repeated reminder, why are we doing this, Joshua? For the Lord. Why are we doing this, Joshua? For the Lord. And let's make sure we finish the task. And he devoted all to destruction.
And then comes that reminder at the end of the chapter again. Why? Because the Lord had fought for his people. The Lord had fought for his people. And that brings us back again to Christ, doesn't it? Do we fight for our own salvation? No. Your salvation, my salvation is only by grace through the blood of Jesus Christ. The only warrior in our salvation is Christ. They tried to put a stone to cover his cave. They tried to put a large stone there to keep him. Did you catch that in the story? And the stone remains there till this day. But the stone in front of that tomb doesn't. That's why Paul, in writing about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, uses this line. And he will reign until he has what? Put all enemies, where? Under his feet. You want to see the picture of the victor? It's Jesus Christ standing with his foot on your sin. It's Jesus Christ standing with his foot on those principalities and powers of this present evil age. The picture is Jesus Christ with his foot even upon death itself. Why? Because he is the victor over sin, over death, over hell, over the grave, over every single enemy of his. And now he says to you and I, church, go forward. Storm even the gates of hell. Don't rest on the past. Move. 